Empire. Is winning everything? I was told it was everything. If they build the right engine behind how to create the right content and, and get it engaging with, with their fans, regardless of whether your, your star player leaves or whether you know your team is doing well during the season or not, there's still value that, they, that can be generated from that. That's Brian Kim, the vice president of sports at GumGum. As it turns out, you don't need to win to win. The future is now. Yes, it was not the end of the world for the Cavaliers to lose the King, although I think Brian Kim will at least agree that winning, and they need LeBron to do that, does still matter. Just maybe not as much as it used to when it comes to working with sponsors. He's coming up in a bit. But first, the future is now with the start of the new baseball season, and one thing that hasn't changed is what a difference sign-stealing can make. AL East Giants, the Yankees, and the Red Sox got into a PR war when Boston was found to have been using smartwatches to try to relay signs a couple of seasons ago. Not that there is anything wrong with that. Sign stealing may be lowbrow, but it's not technically illegal. Still, with technology advancing, fighting off new ways of spying is something baseball thinks teams might be into. Todd Dybus writes for NBC Sports Washington. He's got a really cool piece about what's being done starring a Nationals starter. Hey, Todd, how are you? I'm well, Bram. How are you? I'm great. So what is baseball doing here? They're trying to use technology to fight technology, basically. And what they did at National Spring Training is they put a watch on a catcher and a watch on a pitcher and tried to get them to give the signs that way. Um, Obviously, the idea there is you don't see fingers flashing in between their legs and you don't have to go through different patterns to try to stop sign stealing. But there were a variety of problems with the attempt. They, the, the watches themselves didn't really work at first. The players didn't take it very seriously. And afterward, um, the pitcher who used it, Jeremy Hellickson, was highly skeptical of the whole thing. And the catcher who used it, Spencer Keyboom, was also skeptical, though maybe a little more accepting of what was going on. Uh, the problems they saw was it wasn't immediate. And also, Hellickson pointed out that the catcher is sending the sign to the pitcher, whereas many times it's the pitcher who wants to call a pitch. So, But there wasn't an option to do that with this technology. So it's very, very preliminary for Major League Baseball, but the first go-around certainly seemed to have some bumps. I, I mean, it, from a practical standpoint, if a, a catcher is fiddling with a watch, how is he holding a runner on first? Right. Um, <laughs> there seemed to be a lot of practical issues they had the the watch that they had had a three by three grid on it and was color coordinated so then you think about what would happen at night if you have colors <laughs> popping off on the pitching mound on the pitcher's watch so that would be pretty easy to figure out what was happening and also they had another kind of model of that looked like a nfl quarterback's wristband you know with all the plays this was a little bigger than the watch obviously and and gave a few different options but the whole thing is again very very preliminary MLB is trying to get feedback from these guys and the feedback I got from the two Nationals players who tried it was 
this isn't great and we don't think this is going to work. In fact, Hellickson said that he hopes he's retired uh, by the time this <laughs> is introduced, if it ever is. Um, let me ask this question. Why does, because technically it's not illegal to steal signs. The Red Sox got in trouble because mm-hmm. they were using technological advances to gain an advantage, and baseball put their foot down on that. Why does baseball want to address this issue? It was just a really bad PR situation with the Red Sox and Yankees, obviously two very prominent teams in Major League Baseball. Um, I talked to Clint Hurdle, the Pirates manager, who's in baseball since the early 70s in, in Major League Baseball, and he said there was a time when you were having your sign stolen, it was shame on you, change your signs, you know, and he mentioned that teams would keep certain guys on coaching staff simply because they could steal signs, and they were very good at that, and they, they wanted to pass along that information and keep those guys around for that reason. He also mentioned that he's had instances where he's been in a visiting park, and they find out that an overhead cam is shooting down on their scouting reports in the dugout, and they had to move their books because it, the cam was shooting that and then relaying the information back to the opposing dugout. So there's all sorts of stuff going on here. I think Major League Baseball is kind of – at a minimum, trying to appear that they're doing something about this. At a maximum, trying to use technology in a way that will foil much of it. Um, I'll let you go with this. Um, the NFL puts earpieces in helmets and allows coaches to communicate with their players for a period of time as a play clock winds down. Why not put mm-hmm. earpieces in pitchers and catchers? It, it's That's uh, another option they're thinking about. An earpiece for a pitcher a microphone in the mask of the catcher challenge there, of course, is if the catcher is talking with someone in the box, that doesn't make much sense. But that idea of earpieces and and something audio that way is also being considered. They didn't try that um, when they were in national spring training, but it's certainly something they're kicking around. Basically right now they're open to anything and they're just trying to see, they're kind of throwing things at the wall, see what sticks a little bit and then what could be refined to move forward. Well, there's a startup for someone who's got a great idea to how to fix the problem. You can read more about the mix of tech and the pastime from Todd Dibus at NBCSportsWashington.com. Thank you, Todd. All right, so MLB will try to solve the puzzle of not stealing signs any longer. They could use some gamers to probably help them out and code that. Simon Ogus from Future Sport is here now. Speaking of, uh, the Olympics isn't too keen on having the esports, which is, I think is a huge surprise. Me too. It's really had a lot of adoption and uh, a lot of mainstream, uh, huge numbers from from viewership. It seems to me like a generational divide potentially and and nothing with, with organizations like the Olympics probably ever happens too quickly. All right. And we'll see if the old school meets the new school when you rejoin us later in the show. More with Simon in a moment. But up next, it is the general manager of Gum Gum Sports, Brian Kim. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Our guest this week is Brian Kim, who is the general manager of the sports division at Gum Gum Sports. And if you read what the company is doing, it reads this way. Gum Gum is an artificial intelligence company with deep expertise in computer vision. 
Our mission is to unlock the value of images and videos produced daily across the web. What does that mean, Brian? Yeah, in a nutshell, what it means is we are teaching computers how to see uh, imagery and video content much like human beings do. And we take that technology and then apply it to different industries where we see the value of it being leveraged by consumers or um, you know, B2B businesses that we want to work with. So in the, in the situation with Gum Gum Sports, we've focused on building a sports division that helps both teams, rights holders, and brands understand the true value that they're generating across their sponsorships by being able to identify those sponsors across social media content, live broadcast TV, streaming platforms in an accurate and measured way, and then being able to measure that um, and provide a value associated to it so that they understand what they're getting back as a return on investment. Okay, um, so let's take um, broadcast entities that pay rights to use clips from sporting events. Has the value been altered by what you are viewing here and, and what you guys are trying to figure out? I wouldn't say the value has been altered, but it's been provided more accurately and in, in a very easy, um, digestible consumption ma- manner. So what I mean by that is you, we provide you know level of, of, um, of kind of speed of delivery in, in a manner where you're going to get your data within a couple of days, um, and it's not being analyzed by human beings. So there's no subjectiveness as far as whether somebody's logos appeared in the background of a basket stanchion or an LED um, and how long that actually uh, happened. How does this work with a company? They work with you and they find out what? Yeah, so there's two sides of the coin that we typically work with. So I'll start with kind of the traditional side, which is going to be on the team side. So a team will approach us and say, you know, we're spending multi-million dollars in selling our sponsorship portfolio across all these different assets that, that we sell. Part of that delivery is going to be across the broadcast analysis uh, games that people are watching. A lot of that nowadays is as sports consumption has kind of shifted is coming across social media. So how do we you know, understand how that value is being consumed across all these different mediums, how much is coming from social media, how much is coming from broadcast, so that we can take that data and present it back to the sponsors and show them how much value that we're actually generating for them. Um, on the flip side, you have the, the sponsors who are spending the money there. You know, they want to know, should I be buying a pull pad versus a press table versus um, you know, a naming's rights? And am I paying the right amount of money for the value that I'm actually getting back depending on the team that I'm willing to invest in? Is this ever changing? I mean, I look at this from the perspective of the content consumption, and this is the broadcast entities have been dealing with this for some time now. They're trying to figure it out. But just the content consumption, is there any consistency that you can go to to either side and say, we're fairly certain that it succeeds if it goes in these places? Yeah, there, there definitely is. I think, you know, in the last two years, I would say um, teams have really started to understand how to leverage their social media audience, whether it's their players specifically or the audience that they've generated who follow their own accounts. And that has been a kind of a core focus, I think, in how they're um, sharing content, creating content on the fly and, and leveraging that in a manner that helps boost these values so that, you know, in the case of a lot of sports, when you still see 
TV broadcast ratings decline, that doesn't mean you're getting less value as, as a sponsor in, in sports sponsorships on the advertiser side. It actually just means that there are other ways that that sports is being consumed. And if the teams are appropriately kind of investing in, in creating that content, then they're adding value back to the, to the sponsorships at the end of the day. Uh, you know, without actually calling out any of, uh, of your clients, can you give a specific example of this, even if it doesn't include naming the team or, or the player where, where you're seeing this stuff work and they're getting a better grasp of how to handle all of this? Yeah, I mean, I, one product that we recently launched, which is called the NBA Scoreboard, is actually a ranking of all of the different teams um, and how their social media accounts, so they're only the accounts that they own across Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook perform. Um, and that's a product that we sell to, to a subset of, of our clients. I would say, you know, a great example here is, is the Cleveland Cavaliers, who, based on our data, they are actually still in the top 10 in, not even top 10, I would say top five in value generated across their social media accounts. Um, and, you know, considering the shift that's happened from them being, you know, a LeBron-driven team that was, you know, performing and, and being in the finals every single year to how they've done this year, you'd actually think that that wouldn't be the case. But I think what it shows is really that um, social media has become an avenue where, um, if they build the right engine behind how to create the right content and, and get it engaging with, with their fans, regardless of whether your, your star player leaves or whether you know, your team is doing well during the season or not, there's still value that, they, that can be generated from that. I mean, listen, I'm sure they prefer to have LeBron James than not have LeBron James. That would seem to be silly not to want to have him. But, but what you're kind of expressing here is it's not the end of the world. Yeah, it's not the end of the world to their, to their sponsors, and it's not the end of the world huh. to them you know, as a brand who's trying to build you know, an enterprise value associated to them. So I think, again, it just shows that um, in, in TV, in the TV world, a lot of this was dictated off of um, only being able to understand whether you're playing well and what that means to your network numbers. And I think social media has really shifted that paradigm and given the teams a lot more control and freedom to be able to create authentic, organic content that is integrated with their sponsors and drives value. I mean, certainly, like, you would have to suggest, you'd have to guess that merchandising went a little bit down for Cleveland because they don't have somewhat of the star power of LeBron James on their team outside of their, their specific region. But, but the, what you're kind of saying here is that the brand is strong, right? That, like, it can withstand maybe the greatest player ever walking away from it in the middle of his career. Correct. And I think that's, a, you know, for, for a league that now is driven a lot by star power, it's kind of a great message for teams to feel comfortable about because it means, at least on the business side, you know, there are some things that are going to be driven by um, the broadcast deals that they've structured and, and their network deals. But there is a little bit more control on their side of not having to feel, you know, maybe in the case of like the Pelicans, that AD is going to go leave next year and, or they have to go trade them and suddenly their value is going to be going to the ground, right? Well, I mean, that's the assumption that that happens, that if you lose someone of that caliber, the Nationals just had this with, with Bryce Harper going to Philadelphia, and so they lose the most marketable player in the game, let alone their team, even if they are still good. New Orleans will go through this with Anthony Davis. LeBron James has done this to a couple of franchises now, and I guess could potentially happen to the Lakers again as well. But but what you're painting here is you can walk into the room with the teams and say that's not the end of the world for you for this to happen, that we can – we could salvage the brand and not see a massive drop-off from it? Correct. Um, that's definitely, I think, the case. And I think, you know, there's, there's revenue and money that can be recouped despite some of those, you know, monumental shifts that can happen from one team to another. Um, I, I, boy, you can't go in there and pitch winning doesn't matter, though. 
You know, I mean, like we we all have to believe we all have to believe it because Cleveland's not better off without LeBron James. There's no metric that says that's the case. But you are suggesting it's okay. You know, you might go through a down period, but it's okay. Correct, and you're you're protecting your downside, right? You're not saying you're going straight from you know first to worst. You can protect yourself by you know being able to augment your offerings with things like social media that will really help you maintain some level of performance back to. Um, the sponsorships that, that, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with that space, but they're usually multi-year deals, right? So if you're locked in, regardless of whether the star player leaves or not, you're kind of stuck in that deal, and, and they want to see value return back back on that. Are you finding then, then a, a star's – so a team then could be flexible based on those contracts when deciding whether to attempt to retain somebody? Like if they are locked in with a bunch of sponsors, regardless of whether the star is there, that could help shape whether they want to retain that player? Um, it potentially could. I, I wouldn't say that that's something that these days are, are baked in the contracts, but that's definitely an angle that, that could change in the future. And I think – you know, more and more, like the Lakers, I think, were probably top five last year anyways, but now, you know, particularly with Wish being their jersey patch, are, are by and far number one in value that's being generated back to them. So I think, I think really there's, there's kind of upside potential in being able to maintain um, star power and, and players who are going to be, you know, ranked in the top ten um, of the league and being able to drive incremental value with them. I, I guess I'm just I'm sitting here going. I, I still have to believe that winning matters. So are are you seeing metrics that teams perform better that win? We definitely see in general that the top teams are going to be near the top. I think where we do see is people who understand that the business component of what they're running here can be run like a business succeed at managing that separately outside of the team's performance itself. And I think that's where it becomes hard both as a consumer and also as, as these teams think about it of how do you separate your product from, you know, the business that you're trying to run. And, you know, to a degree, I think both sides are just trying to find that equal medium of saying, you know, we have a business that we want to run, but a lot of it's dictated on our product. How do the two co-mingle in a sense that um, that's the way that we're going to be able to deliver value back to everybody? Are you working with the traditional networks at all? We do work with some networks, um, not that many. Um, we've typically worked on, on, I wouldn't say kind of the traditional sports, but more of um, things like uh, motocross and golf and, and other things that are, that are um, outside the scope of, say, like traditional leagues. Yeah, because my background obviously is with the, a traditional network and traditional networks, and, and you're talking about which is the new era here of advertising, and it is through social media. And I wonder if they're coming to you saying, what do we do here to remain relevant in these spaces and keep our other businesses flourishing. Yeah, I mean, an interesting thing I think that happened last year, which was not even tied to us at all, but just kind of coincidentally happened, was um, House of Highlights getting uh, purchased by Bleacher Report. And I think that's just a great example of an organization like TNT understanding that um, social media is an important place that they need to be in, that they already have an audience through Bleacher Report. Um, on social media, but really saw an, an uh, you know huge audience associated to House of Highlights and felt like bringing that in house could bring into incremental value to them. So that that would be a really good example there. Um, where do you think it's all going? Are, are are these platforms and these places where this stuff is happening? Do they feel stable to you when you go to your clients and say this is where you should be, not just for this season, but for the next two, three, four, five seasons? I do think it's pretty. Um, pretty stable as far as where those investments can, can be. And I think on the brand side, you know, the way that they view it is uh, if you're a CMO at, at a large company like, you know, State Farm or Allstate or Geico or any of these others, 
you know, you're spending money on TV, you're spending money on social media, um, on just pure advertising, right? So, um, you know, sponsorships at times I don't think is bucketed into that marketing channel, uh, meaning like how, how am I divesting my money across all these different channels and what's working for me and what's not working for me. I think with our data, the message there is really sponsorships is another channel just like all the other ones. You're getting essentially free exposure or measured exposure from gum gum across social media, across TV. Compare that to how much you're actually paying to go buy for it. If you're getting a better bang for your buck on the sponsorship side, maybe you want to double down there um, and, be, and not spend that you know, extra couple million dollars on buying more commercials, but actually go sponsor another team that's going to drive you um, that same exposure at a better rate. And that's, I think, kind of some of the shifts that, that we want to go see in the next three to four years of just the mentality of how sponsorships are being thought about. How about the specific athletes? Is, is it a different model here, or does it kind of all fall into the same realm when they're trying to get involved with the things that you're talking about? I think a lot of them have done really well building their own individual brands. I'll, I'll give you an example, like Damian Lillard, who um, you, could, you could debate whether he's probably a top um, five athlete, probably you know fits in the top ten when it comes to his play, but he is an amazing influencer when it comes to, um, you know, showing content and authentic content about his personal life, about the brands that he's trying to build, um, about partners that he's working with. And what he gets as a result of that is a very engaged user base who, who you know, will comment and share and, and, and retweet and do all this stuff for him. And that, you know, creates that ripple effect across, you know, his content going viral or getting picked up by more mediums and build, helps him build something that's probably you know, bigger and better than what he's just doing on the court. So do you advise that whatever this campaign is, let's take Lillard, for example, who is doing a a great job of branding himself. Do you advise that he work to work his brand in with the brand of the Trailblazers or the NBA? Or are those now kind of separated entities? I would view them as more of separate entities and more of him having you know, visibility and understanding of how his brand can be both leveraged for the Blazers and also for his broader sponsorships that are outside of that, right? So he, you know, much like the Kardashians, for example, like they've just built their own brand and they now have leveraging power of, of how much that's worth and, and what they can go charge, whether they want their team associated to it or whether they want a separate sponsorship associated to it. Yeah, but the, the Kardashians work for themselves, though. In the case of someone like Lillard, you know, he does have an employer who plays, pays him millions of dollars and does work under a league. So I think the idea here is that they're supposed to figure out how to do this together, right? Correct. And and I think that would be ideal in most cases. I I do think a lot of teams kind of under leverage, you know, that relationship with with the players and don't, you know, stipulate anything around their contracts of social media or stuff like that to keep it more intertwined, which is probably a missed opportunity that, you know, hopefully will get bridged in the next, you know, 12, 24 months. Um, Tell me a little bit about Gum Gum Sports. What's the background of it? Yeah, the background here was, you know, we saw at, at GumGum as a company, we just saw this opportunity within the sports measurement space where there were other, other companies who were kind of focused on doing this, but they were essentially doing it manually, um, no tech involved, a lot of human beings involved in kind of measuring all this stuff. And, you know, our view really at the end of the day was, one, you need technology to become what we want to become, which is essentially a currency. And the reason why the currency makes sense is because you want both sides of the coin, meaning the, the advertisers who are going to pay for the sponsors and the teams that want to charge as much as they can for it, to feel like they're both getting equal return 
um, on that negotiation. So you want a third party involved to help that transaction happen and make sure that both sides are being accountable in, in what they are committing to deliver and what they're actually being able to deliver. So really, I think that opportunity in the sports space we felt like was one that um, nobody was being focused on, that we wanted to um, be the first to go and do. You know, it's a two-year-old business that has grown tremendously over the last couple of years. We're talking, you know, 300, 400% growth year over year. Um, the team's doubled in size. And really, you know, I think we've just been able to kick off the ground showing that this solution taken to the market can really help, you know, grow a $70 billion-plus industry that's, you know, continually growing and has more money being spent in it. And what's your background? How did you end up with this? Yeah, so my background um, was uh, always in digital marketing, and I've been here at GumGum for actually five years and and was originally the head of product and and was one of the people that kind of helped think through this opportunity and how we could go after and leverage our technology that way, and now kind of am overseeing the entire division, including, um, you know, our revenue targets and what we're trying to accomplish from a strategy standpoint. Brian Kim is the general manager of the sports division at GumGum Sports. You can check them out at GumGum.com. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, Brad. Thanks again to Brian Kim, General Manager of Gum Gum Sports. Check out their fares at gumgumsports.com. Simon Ogus from Future Sport is here now. We talked earlier for a moment about esports and the Olympics, which felt like a natural, being that it's in all these other international games, and it seems that that's the way things are going, but hit the brakes, right? It was interesting. It seemed a lot of the issues stemmed from just lack of government's issues, uh, it's really just while it's getting mainstream attention and leagues and like the NBA are adopting it and really creating teams, there's still it's still very new and in, in, in its infancy. And I think the Olympics kind of got cold feet a with how it would be viewed by spectators on a stage like that. And just overall, there's a lot, uh, a lot of things to be buttoned up to uh, how it's governed. I mean, I have to imagine, though, at some point in time, esports is part of the Olympic Games. How could it not be? I would agree with you. The viewership that continues to grow is just too high, I think, to ignore. And it's a lot of younger uh, younger fans, younger consumers, which should, uh, you would think, uh, entice the Olympics. And that just can't be ignored, I think, forever. I mean, in 2020, they're going to have surfing, which is one of the old age-old sports. And they just incorporated golf. I, it, the idea that they wouldn't go in this direction to me sounds ridiculous. Yeah, it would be interesting to see a more detailed explanation uh, on top of kind of press release statements of, of why they wouldn't want to do esports right now as opposed to, you mentioned, surfing. Uh, I imagine there's probably a, a lot that didn't hit the, the, the news articles about why it wasn't being uh, included this time. But I would say uh, in future uh, future Olympics, maybe even the one after the, the next one, it's going to be there. And the possible problem, really, the possible problem is you don't know which games are going to be popularized enough to be in the Olympics four years in advance, right? I mean, that's something that they have to deal with to think about. What is going to be incorporated here? To add surfing, you're just getting guys on boards on waves. What are the games that are going to be popular in the esports community four years from now? I don't know that anyone can even answer that question. That's a really good point, actually. You know, when, for every sport, the setup and the the rules and the officiating is the same. But with esports, as you mentioned, it's they're going to have to constantly be in evaluation mode because one game that's popular four years ago might not be popular for the next Olympics and you don't want to be trotting out a a game that everyone's passed by and in turn you want to be on top of what the newest uh, and exciting game is and these games can break out so quickly and have mass followings like Fortnite 
seemingly overnight. Uh, and that's something that the Olympics will always have to be uh, you know, focused on leading up to maybe even the months before the games because these games can explode in popularity in such a short amount of time. All right, let's stay with one of the Olympic sports basketball here for a moment. Of course, it's the time of year at the time that we're taping this. The Final Four is about to happen. The NBA playoffs are about to begin as well. And we've been following this industry for a while and there is newest, latest, greatest data that is coming out about finding the proper shot, right? It, it's really interesting, and I noticed that the two teams that were featured most prominently were Michigan and Virginia, who are, are still both in the tournament right now. Uh, it, it's, it's really just when you analyze basketball, I've never really heard about players saying, you know, my shot uh, degree was, was 37 and it should be 45 degree angle. I just feel like that really the da- data in, in basketball has been able to, uh, you know, have players, A, analyze their games uh, in completely different ways that, that weren't around before, and B, I think instead of having coaches rely on, on just visually seeing things and breaking it down in their heads, you can go back afterwards and have an um, enormous amount of data. Uh, I know Noah, Noah Basketball said they have something like 800,000 shots or even more than a million in their database that you can draw conclusions from. And I think picking up, you know, being able to, to make actionable uh, adjustments to your game quickly will just speed up you know, players' improvement. So we're talking about angles now, right? Not unlike baseball players with launch angles with how they should hit the ball. We're talking about how you should shoot the ball, which makes sense i mean forever the even casual fan like myself would look at this and go that's never going in look at the way he shoots the ball look at the angle that he shoots the ball with it's funny. It's sometimes the, the, the most obvious things are, are the most impactful. You see a free throw sometimes that's, that's shot out of a cannon, and you, and, you know, you say to your TV, why his shot's so flat, he's got to get a little arc on it. But you don't really think about, or at least I didn't. The uh, science behind it. You don't right. think about, you know, what are you actually saying? He needs to get more angle on his shot, give the ball more of a, 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 loop, a looping angle to be able to better play off the rim uh, and, and a number of things. And, and I think this, you know, Noah Basketball – system that's been featured really enables these coaching staffs and players to really understand what's best to do uh, and really be able to make their practices a lot more efficient because suddenly you're not spending hours breaking down tape. You're getting at, you're getting data instantly and being able to make changes right on the fly. All right. And the future is now with sports betting. It is proliferating very quickly around the country. It's being legalized in a number of jurisdictions. And I was surprised to read this one that MGM has a deal with the MLS because you don't think in this country soccer as a betting platform, maybe obviously in Europe and in other nations, but not here. But I guess soccer is getting in front of it, too. Yeah, I think every professional league of any size that's going to allow betting has to really get on top of. Uh, gambling data, uh, integrity information, because while everyone, you know, seemingly there's a groundswell of support for for legalized gambling for good reason, there's still, you know, you can't just really throw it out there and then see what happens. There's a lot of stuff that you have to do to make sure that when you are out there ready to, to, to offer it, it's ready to go. And I think the MLS uh, partnering with MGM, which the NBA has done, a number of other leagues have done, will really enable them to really be in control of their data, know what kind of offerings are going to be uh, provided to, to potential betters and of course the integrity data is going to be really important to make sure there's not odd uh, odd betting patterns that can impact results and i think this is their angle and all the leagues are using this particular angle using the integrity word to try to get a piece of the pie I, I think that I think yeah the the integrity fee I think is a completely different uh, other factor uh, and I think that as you, I agree with you I think that's kind of a, a little bit of a money grab but I do think that for a sport at the MLS it, it could be really damaging if you if it came out that a a player was you know not was impacted and, and potentially. 
affecting the game. And just, you know, thinking about a sport like soccer, if you got to a, a goalie, you could really control the outcome of a game. Uh, and that would just be really damaging to the sport overall and not worth the, the potential kind of influx that gambling would provide. So it's really important that, that teams and leagues stay on top of betting information and make sure that, that the stuff can be nipped in the bud if it ever happens because you know, knowing human nature, it, it'll probably come up eventually. That'll do it for us this week. Remember, the future is now. This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein.